Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are back in Luke 14 again this morning, so if you'll be finding that, we'll read our verses here in a few moments. Luke 14, <clears throat> targeted and sometimes misleading advertising seems to be the way things are going these days. You can't trust the headlines anymore because they are just designed to get you to click or to scroll. And the reality is that when you do click or scroll, the headline is not accurate. It does not describe what it is you are about to read. And then you decide you're not going to do this anymore. You decide that uh, you're not going to get caught in this again because you fell for it yet again, and yet you're going to do it again. And I'm about to sneeze. I don't know that I've ever had this in a sermon, but um, so maybe I can get past that. So... I get emails and notices all the time, as do you, from various uh, companies, including my cell phone carrier, about how I can get the latest phone absolutely free. I don't trade phones very often because I don't want to pay for them, but I mean, if they're going to be free or nearly so, then I'd be foolish not to. So occasionally I do go and check out these deals I do click and decide I'm going to find out what I can get only to read or hear the words, you're not eligible. Maybe it's because I'm not a new customer, I am an existing customer, or maybe it's because there is some sort of loophole. The rules seem to change all of the time. Maybe it's because I don't want to add another line or expand my service, which is going to wind up costing me the same or more in the long run had I just paid for the phone to begin with. I recently did upgrade my phone. Now, just so you don't think I'm frivolous, I had an iPhone 8 that came out in 2017, and so I've had it for quite a long time, but I did go and upgrade, and of course, before I went to upgrade, I saw these ads that I could get a good amount of money for trading in my phone. For my particular carrier, it was up to $700 in trade-in. So I went through the whole process, which is always longer and more involved than it seems like it ought to be. And then we got to the last question. And the young lady that was helping me said, do you have a phone to trade in? And of course I said, I did pulling it out of my pocket and knowing what I was about to hear. The young girl did not use these exact words, but it meant the same thing. I was quickly informed that I wasn't eligible for a phone trade-in. That not only did I not get up to $700, I got absolutely nothing, which is what I expected because my phone was very old and rather beaten up. We simply don't like to hear the words, we're not eligible for some good deal, because we know other people are getting those good deals and we want the same thing. We want the same benefits and the same blessings that they are getting. We feel like we are missing out or worse, being taken advantage of. We want to be included, to know that others are not getting something that we are not getting. Last week I made you an offer. 
It was the offer of attending the great banquet in the kingdom of God, a dinner invitation, we called it. I acknowledge that many of you already had your place at the table reserved. You already had your nameplate there. And your responsibility then was to invite others to join you. After all, the offer is indiscriminate. That is, it is to be made to everyone. And then I acknowledge that there are others who do not have their place at the table, and we invited you to come. Now today, I actually want to question both of those statements, which hopefully will not contradict what I said last week. I'm going to have to keep doing that, so I apologize. But what I mean by that is that there are some who think they have a place at the table, but one day they will look in vain for their nameplate. I attended a dinner Monday before last with the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, and I walked into this arena where we were meeting, not an arena, but a, a, a room, and I went around the entire room looking for my nameplate, where I was supposed to sit, and I couldn't find it. I walked around the whole room, and finally somebody told me, the nameplates are out in the foyer. You have to go get yours and bring it in here and sit wherever you want to. I thought they had forgotten me and didn't have me sitting somewhere. There are others who are not at the table, and frankly, you're not even eligible, which initially you're going to find hard to believe. But hang with me, because we are going to see that there are those who think they are at the table, and those who know they are not at the table, who find themselves in the same category. They are simply not eligible. Now, the invitation goes out to all. But there are some who aren't eligible. I know that's a bit confusing. So let's look at our text and you'll see what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now I acknowledge I'm doing this from a negative standpoint. I thought about turning it around to the positive, but ultimately I decided to leave it as is because this is the way Jesus has framed it. And for once, my hope is that this sermon applies to none of us. I would love it if we could come to the end of this sermon and say, nobody is not eligible. So what does this mean? Let's look at our text. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has had enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish." Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Are you notice right off that we are in the very next section from where we were last week. However, the setting itself has changed. 
Last week, we were at the dinner table in the home of a Pharisee, reclining at dinner while having a conversation. But now, Jesus is on the move again in his inevitable journey toward Jerusalem. And great crowds are following him. Now, I'll be honest with you. If we had great crowds coming to church every Sunday, I would be very happy and probably would not ask a lot of questions. In other words, if this sanctuary were packed out every Sunday morning, it probably wouldn't come to my mind as to why you're here. I would just be happy that you are. I would assume that people are coming because they are interested in the gospel and desire to follow Christ. I certainly wouldn't question your motives, nor would I intentionally say something that would drive half of you away. But that's exactly what Jesus does. Because number one, Jesus knows the hearts and minds of people, so he knows why, why they are there. And then he says some very challenging things from time to time. So to this large crowd that is following him, three times he says, you're not eligible. Now he doesn't use those exact words, but there is a recurring phrase here in this text, three times, cannot be my disciple. We find it in verse 26, it's there again in verse 27, and it is in verse 33. And so those three phrases, and obviously the text that precedes it, are going to be our three points this morning. Now, the third one is the only one that, strictly speaking, is a parable, or it's actually two parables with the same point. So it's the third one that qualifies this to be in this series on parables, but obviously we're going to look at the whole section. So from the first two verses, we're going to learn that you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. You are not eligible if you love anyone more than Jesus. Again, Jesus knows our hearts, which means he knows the reasons why people are following him. He is not interested in curiosity seekers. He's not looking for those who merely want to see some more miracles. He's not wanting people to follow him just for the help that they can get personally, whether that's another miraculous feeding or some sort of personal miracle. He is not interested in followers who are just going along with the flow. The crowd mentality has them swept along and they don't even know who they're following nor why. Jesus is interested in those who are committed and ultimately are committed for the right reasons. And therefore, he makes this provocative statement that no doubt would cause everyone in the crowd to take notice and ask, what did he just say? Did he really just say, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to hate your father, hate your mother, hate your siblings, and hate your children? Well, that is what he said, but let's try to figure out what he meant, because we need to understand what he means, because this is a deal breaker. If we don't follow this, then we cannot be his disciple. Now, there is no doubt here that he refers to any other relationship because clearly he lists the most important relationships here, so it would be applicable for every other relationship as well. Parents, spouse, children, siblings, they're all included on Jesus' hate list. And keep in mind, this is in a culture where the immediate and even extended family was extremely important, even as it remains in our own day. Even if our families do have some strained relationships at time, 
we certainly wouldn't go around saying we hate our family. I mean, hate is such a strong word. We don't tend to use that word very flippantly. We don't say very, very often, I hate so-and-so. We might say some other things like, well, I don't like them very much, or I just don't get along with them all the time, or we have some issues to be sure, but we seldom come right out and say that we hate someone because that's so harsh and it seems to take a step further. And yet Jesus is saying here, in order to be eligible to be his disciple, he says, you must hate your father, mother, siblings, and children and spouse. So surely there has to be an explanation to this bold statement. Well, in a similar passage in Matthew's gospel, the wording is a bit different. There it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not able to be my disciple. So Jesus is making a comparison. Your love for Christ ought to be so strong that by comparison, your love for anybody else in your life looks like hate. It is a comparison. They both could be love, but one love is so much stronger than the other. There is another example in Luke's gospel, actually just a few chapters later than what we're reading this morning. Jesus had just told a parable, this time the parable of the dishonest manager where he actually commends some of the things that this dishonest manager does, which is a dilemma for another day. But speaking to a culture that believed money and God were connected, meaning that those who were rich were rich because they were being blessed by God, another example of how things really don't change a whole lot, Jesus said these words, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So again, he is not saying that you must hate money in order to love God. What he is saying is a comparison, that these two things cannot coexist in the same way. We also know that Jesus is not using hate in the same way that we might use it because he includes ourselves. It's not just the ones I've mentioned, but did you notice he also says, yourself. You have to hate yourself. He's not prescribing a self-loathing, a despising of ourselves so that we can love God. And yet we do know that Christianity teaches that we are to forsake ourselves, to turn away from ourselves and turn to Christ as a major aspect of discipleship. Finally, we know that this hatred is not what we normally think of because of the positive statements that are made throughout Scripture concerning the family. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loves the church. Paul tells Timothy in his uh, letter to Timothy that in the church, widows are to be cared for. But he goes on to say that the family's responsibility is to care for the widows, which then frees up the church to care for the widows who do not have family to care for them. But if someone has family to care for widows and they do not, Paul says that he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We hear Jesus on the cross instructing John to take care of his mother. 
So providing and caring for our families is indeed a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. All that to say that being a disciple comes with realigned priorities. Loving Christ takes first place over any other relationship, which does mean that sometimes we do have to leave our families. Sometimes families forsake those who have trusted in Christ. They cast them out. But even as we unite with Christ, we find that we have a new family. Now, gratefully for most of us, our earthly families are often connected to our church family or our heavenly family. At the very least, they're not angry with us for being believers. But the statement needs not be watered down nor glossed over. Christ must be our first love. Because if you do not love Christ more than anyone else, if you love anyone else more than Christ, then you're not eligible. Our second point comes from verse 27. The second time this phrase is used, cannot be my disciple. And this time it comes from another provocative statement that we are familiar with, though our interpretation of this is usually somewhat superficial. Here again, we are going to learn you're not eligible if you love comfort more than commitment. This famous statement from Jesus is about taking up your cross and following something Luke also says in chapter 9. So what does it mean to bear your own cross? Again, it's very important that we understand what that means because if we do not do it, we are not eligible. In modern day usage, it has come to mean the willingness to suffer. Though in our context, it usually means in a minor or superficial way. And so you hear people say, well, that's just the cross I have to bear. The meaning being that there is some hardship in their life, some inconvenience that they are having to endure, and they see that as their cross to bear. Maybe it is a physical illness. <coughs> Maybe it is dealing with a difficult person. But the question becomes, how would the initial audience have heard this? When Jesus said, bear your own cross, how would the initial audience, that crowd that is following him, have understood that? Well, the cross in the time of Jesus was not a piece of jewelry. They did not wear it around their necks to symbolize their commitment to Christianity. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but I'm just saying the crowd that was following him, none of them had a cross necklace on when he made this statement. They didn't have crosses hung in their homes or dangling from their rearview mirrors. I know they didn't have cars, but I'm trying to contemporize it. They didn't put crosses on tombstones or along the side of the road where a tragic accident occurred. The cross in Jesus' day was, a symbol, uh, was not a symbol of sacrifice, whether small or great. Remember, this is before Jesus is crucified, before he conquers sin, death, and the grave. So that the cross during Jesus' earthly ministry meant one thing and one thing only. It was the cruelest form of death meted out by the Roman officials. It was so cruel that even Roman citizens were exempt from it. No matter what they did, they were not allowed to be put to death in this way. So they would hang someone on a cross. Whatever crime they had, been, they had committed would have been posted above so that everyone knew why they were dying. They would linger there for days on public display 
Furthermore, this didn't take place in a small room with a few spectators. It took place on an open roadway where the, more, the most people could actually see what was taking place. That way, not only would the criminal experience the most shame, but others who witnessed it would, be, think, uh, would think about whether or not they wanted to commit such a crime and go through this same thing as well. So it would be a deterrent to others. So when Jesus uses this imagery, he is referring to a total commitment on the part of a disciple, someone who is willing to forsake all for the sake of following Christ, even if that path means eventual death. In other words, even life itself is not to be greater than our commitment to Christ. You know virtually all of the initial band of disciples, the 12, virtually all of them died as martyrs. Judas, of course, killed himself, so we'll take that out of the equation, leaving the 11. And of the 11, it seems that 10 of the 11 were martyred. The only one dying of natural causes was John, who was exiled to an island. So 10 of the 11 literally did exactly what Jesus is saying here. They did bear their cross even to death. Now, that does not mean that you will also or that if you do not die in this way, then you're not a true disciple. We are grateful that we live in a time, we live in a part of the world where generally speaking, we are not killed for being believers. So for us, it is about our attitude or commitment rather than a physical reality. We must love Christ above all else, that was our first point, to the extent that we are willing to die if that is our fate. Now, it's easy to sit here this morning in comfortable pews with the air conditioner working and say, we will follow Christ unto death. But the truth of the matter is, if we took just those two comforts away, if you didn't have comfortable pews and there wasn't any air conditioning, many would begin to complain. We work hard in life so that we can enjoy its comfort. We want the comforts that the world offers, and once we have them, we certainly don't want to give them up. I mean, even as we approach death, what do we say? Let's see if we can just keep her comfortable. Let's see if we can just keep him comfortable, free of pain. And I'm not criticizing that. I'll assure you when my time comes, I'm going to want those medicines as well, rather than go through the pain. My point is simply that we are so accustomed to seeking and enjoying the comforts of life that commitment over comfort seems so foreign. Why, even when we go on a mission trip, especially to certain parts of the world, what's the first question that people ask when someone is getting ready to leave, and what's the first question they ask when they come back? We want to know, is it safe? Oh, you're going where? Is it, is it safe to go there? And when they come back, we ask that same question, did you feel safe? Was there any time on your trip where you felt threatened? Now, I'm not saying we should be reckless. I'm not the most risk taker in the world either. I'm simply trying to show us that we are so focused on comfort that it, that it often overrides total commitment, and it ought to be the opposite. John Bunyan, who is most famous for his uh, allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, spent 12 years of his adult life in prison. We likely would not have Pilgrim's Progress had that not been the case. But he spent 12 years of his adult life in prison for preaching the gospel. 
Now, as you can imagine, that also caused quite a hardship on his wife and children, including his much-beloved Mary, who was one of his children who was blind. On multiple occasions, John Bunyan was given the opportunity to have his freedom. He was told he could be released from prison under one condition. If only he did not preach the gospel when he got out of jail, he could go free. Time and again, he refused. In fact, he said, if I am released from prison, I will preach the gospel tomorrow. And so he languished in prison, giving up his comfort. And he's an example of both our first points. He loved his family, but not to the point that he was willing to sacrifice his love of Christ and the gospel So he trusted that God would provide for his family even as he was remaining true to his calling and sacrifice his own comfort staying in a prison cell for his commitment to Christ. Again, I'm not saying that any of us will ever have to face such difficult decisions. Truth of the matter is, they really shouldn't be that difficult. Commitment to Christ should always override a desire for comfort. Easier said than done, no doubt, But if you do not bear your own cross, you cannot be my disciple, Jesus said. All right, let's move to our third point, and now we finally get to the parables that are in this story or in this text, qualifying this for inclusion in our series. Strictly speaking, there are two parables, but these two parables make the same point. These parables are found in verses 28 through 33, and the point here is this. You're not eligible if you love possessions more than investing. Now, that's not a matter of who's buying and who's selling. I'm not talking about if you're a spender or a saver. So hang with me and you'll figure out what I am talking about. The first parable is about someone who wants to construct something. A tower is mentioned, but for our benefit, it really doesn't matter exactly what he was building. It could have been anything. For us, it would be a home or a business. Now, if you've ever built a home, we built our first home as a married couple. If you've ever built a home, you know that you don't just break ground tomorrow and sort of make decisions on the fly. You start with drawings. And those drawings, those architectural drawings are very specific and very detailed. And you give these plans, these drawings to your contractor who then uses them to construct Not the building first, but to construct a a budget, to go over the plans and see exactly what is needed in order to build this building. And then they give you an estimate. And added to this estimate is a contingency. That is just in case we have forgotten something, just in case the materials cost more than we thought they would, there's a certain percentage added as a contingency. And no doubt these days of uh, out of control inflation and supply chain difficulties, that percentage is much higher. But having done all of that, now the key question is this, do you have enough money for the project? Or do you have the credit? That is, you can either have the money on hand or you can have a bank who is telling you they will give you X amount of dollars in order to complete this project. Either way, you've got to have sufficient funds either on hand or promised by a bank before you begin construction. If If this process does not occur, you might start the project and be unable to complete it. 
leading to ridicule and mocking from all who see it. My dad lives just south of Charlotte on what used to be the grounds of PTL. That's Jim Baker's old ministry. He was not part of that. He simply lives in that area. So years ago, when that ministry came crashing down, they took all of these acreages that PTL owned and they sold them off and now there are hundreds of homes in that area and my dad is part of that area. But when you drive through the old grounds of PTL, there is a high-rise hotel. The second one, there was one that was already completed, but they were in the process, when that ministry fell apart, they were in the process of building a second high-rise hotel. It's probably at least 20 stories, maybe more. It was all bricked up, but that's as far as they got. They never put any windows in it, never went beyond that. And it still stands today as a testimony of what happened with that ministry. Now, I realize that the reasons are different. And I haven't driven by there in a long time. But used to, when we would drive by there, you could see that some of the bricks have fallen down. Uh, what, the building is in disarray, what, what parts they finished. And it's a testimony to how this uh, ministry had fallen. And that's what our story here is telling us. If you start a project and are unable to finish, that project remains as a testimony of your foolishness. The second parable speaks of a king considering going out to battle against an enemy. The wise king counts the cost, weighing his manpower versus his enemies, considering his weapons and technology versus his foe, after all, he wants to go to war with odds of winning the victory or at least have them heavily in his favor. Otherwise, the prudent course of action is to have talks of peace. You don't go to war assuming that you are going to lose. Perhaps Mr. Putin should have thought about this passage of Scripture before he decided to invade the Ukraine, but that's another story. These two parables teach the same thing. It is prudent to count the cost before building or going to war. Likewise, Jesus says his followers should count the cost before making that commitment over comfort that we just talked about. And again, he is speaking to a crowd that is following him, but not all are following for the right reasons. There was another occasion where Jesus had large crowds and began to say some troubling things. And the Bible tells us that many of them turned around and no longer followed him. Presumably, the same thing would have happened here, though we are not told that specifically. And on that other occasion, after the crowds began to filter away, Jesus turned to his inner core and he said to them, are you going to leave also? And they rightly said, no. I mean, where else would we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. And once you come to realize that the gift of eternal life far outpaces anything you might accumulate in this life, you are ready to make this decision. And that decision is to renounce or forsake anything else for the sake of following Jesus. We talked in our Wednesday night Bible study a couple of weeks ago about the rich ruler who came to Jesus seeking eternal life. He came assured of his own goodness. That is, he said, I have followed the law all of my life. And Jesus didn't contradict that. But Jesus did say, okay, there's one more thing you ought to do. Sell everything you have and give the proceeds to the poor and then come and follow me. 
The Bible says the man went away sad because he was a rich man and he was not willing to renounce the things that he had. Now, that story is not prescriptive on how to be saved. In other words, it's not a story that tells us all we have to sell everything we have if we're going to be right with God. Jesus challenged this particular man in this particular regard because that was his God, that was his heart, that was his idol. But here we see we must be willing to forsake everything and once again find that Christ is more valuable than anything else. So that the things that we accumulate and possess are not our greatest priority. Instead, investing in the kingdom of God is far more important to us. That's where I get this title. Not our possessions, but our investing. Not from a financial standpoint necessarily, although that's included in the kingdom of God, but investing in the advancement of and the work of the kingdom. Otherwise, you are simply, once again, not eligible. As you know, we are living in crazy times for a variety of reasons. But one of the craziest things that are going on is you can now identify as anything you want to be. I mean, you can just make it up. You can be whoever or whatever you want to be. And I'm actually thinking about doing a series on who we are in Christ, our identity. Because our identity in this world is all mixed up. And so people just say they can be whatever, whoever they want to be. And by the way, nobody can challenge you on that because identity is now self-assigned. I can just call it as I want it to be. But again, as Lee Corso might have said yesterday, I didn't watch the game day. Not so fast. Because when it comes to the kingdom of God, you cannot just identify in any way you please. You can self-identify as a Christian if you want to. You can talk the talk. You can wear the jewelry. You can post your devotions online for everyone to see. But you don't get to make the rules. And neither do I. It's God's kingdom, not ours. And therefore, he has a right to determine the parameters of acceptance, not you or not me. We've looked at some very hard sayings this morning. Some challenging statements from Jesus that tell us that he was not a preacher of easy believism. Rather, his message was one of full commitment and top priority, where nothing or no one else is more important than following Christ. And by the way, that's not just an option for the top 10%. Those are the requirements for being part of the kingdom of God, for all true followers. Now, if you don't like that, if the cost seems too high, you can walk away. But remember what the disciples said when Jesus asked them. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And hopefully you understand that eternal life far surpasses anything else in this life. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for these challenging words this morning. These are indeed what we might call hard sayings of Jesus. So help us to understand them rightly and help us to make sure that our top priority is you. That we are committed rather than seeking comfort. That we love investing in your kingdom more than accumulating possessions for ourselves. That ultimately we love you more than anyone or anything else. 
because you are just that valuable. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.